Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crimecast. I'm Vicky. And I am Janelle. And we're back again. And this time I actually mean back again because... <laughs> Part two. This is part two, part one you'll never hear, because the audio is gone, so that's great. <laughs> but we are trying again, and hopefully everything works out. I mean, this is very 2020 of us, I would say. Yeah, I mean, we could have just put out my audio, and it would have been a very awkward conversation. <laughs> then, like, here's just the half of it. It's fine. Yeah, here's just an all going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Just shh, pretend it never happened. Shh. <laughs> yes. So we got a great episode for you today, but first, let's head over to the newsroom. Our news this week comes from Alaska, where... It seems like the struggle for TikTok views is very real. Uh, There's a man. (laughs) There's a man named Seth Lookhart. He was sentenced on multiple charges, including reckless endangerment, illegally practicing dentistry, and medical assistance fraud, following a video posted showing the dentist performing a tooth extraction while riding a hoverboard. If your dentist isn't totally extreme, he's doing it wrong. <laughs> extreme dentistry. Extreme dentistry. And also, honestly, the entire field of dentistry was a sham to begin with. So oh my God, why true. are we trying to make it professional? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this video of him uh, on the hoverboard while he was doing a tooth extraction, he it was sent to at least eight people, which he jokingly said that this was the, quote, new standard of care. Mm. Apparently, on top of this, his license was also suspended in 2017, and he wasn't supposed to be practicing anyway, (laughs) which is like... That checks. That tracks. (laughs) Yeah. It's also one of these things that's like... sounds legit. If you're already in trouble, let's do the thing that's going to get me noticed the most, because I don't know. I I don't know. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so... He received 12 years in prison for all of these charges, but he's also not allowed to practice dentistry at all during his uh, 10-month probation once he is released from prison. So that's fun. I, it Also, you know, thinking is about this, <laughs> thinking about this, I'm like, it's also kind of crazy that he's probably getting more time for this than some people do for like you know child pornography or like yeah some other of those like things that you're like why aren't people getting more time for this yeah he wrote a hoverboard and got more time in jail anyway moving along (laughs) Uh. our 
Netflix and Kill this week uh, is a documentary called Real Crime Supermarket Heist. Dun dun. So this is about uh, a man who used the pseudonym Sally. Um, His name was actually Robert Edward Dyer. He sent letters to the British supermarket chain Tesco demanding club cards modified so he could withdraw money from ATMs or he threatened to harm the customers. He eventually sent out a series of letter bombs, um, one of which did explode in someone's face. The other was intercepted by the Royal Mail. Later, he threatened to use pipe bombs against Tesco's customers. Dyer was eventually arrested six months after the extortion threats began and received 12 years for several counts, including blackmail and common assault. I always find some of these things coming from other countries pretty interesting. So this was definitely one I wanted to... um, take a look at because i don't think that we necessarily hear about these things especially something as weird as like trying to get atm cards from a tesco i try yeah it seems like a weird kind of uh situation (laughs) well and i can only compare that to say um going to walmart and being like or sam's club sam's club would probably be a better example i want sam's club's cards uh modified so that i can get money from atms it's like is that even is that possible (laughs) anyway that's on netflix um it's called real crime supermarket heist check it out this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners we're gonna be talking about some interesting stuff today i would say (laughs) it's gonna be real wild what yep that's yep i like that i like that Mm. um (laughs) (laughs) so because janelle and i um you know sometimes we have cases that don't necessarily fit into like a topic or something or we just haven't been able to cover them and we like to do a wild card episode every once in a while so that we can kind of pull these cases off the shelf get them off of our checklists and talk about them on the pod. This is one of those times. Yes. So for my story this week, we are going to be talking about the Hartford Circus Fires. This was one of the worst fire disasters in the history of the United States, but there is a little bit of background information that we need before we jump into all the juicy details. Um mm-hmm. First of all, back in the mid-20th century, it was incredibly common for there to be a traveling circus available for entertainment. The most well-known of these was the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus. Now, of course, if you remember, thanks to dwindling attendance and a huge increase of animal rights protests, the greatest show on Earth, as it was billed, had its final performance in 2017, closing down after 146 years in the business. I definitely remember this happening, like... Actually, I kind of remember thinking, they're still around? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Me too. But, you know, that's... It's one of those things that's like a holdover from Days Gone that you're like, oh, I guess guess we do still do that. (laughs) Now, long before that, the show had transitioned into performing indoors in these large stadiums. But when it was back in its heyday... The show was performed under an enormous canvas tent that they called the Big Top. Um, this could seat 9,000 attendees to watch the three-ring three circus. This is something I didn't know before doing this research, but the canvas tent used what was a pretty common method for waterproofing by uh, being coated in 1,800 pounds of paraffin wax dissolved in 6,000 gallons of gasoline. That sounds legit. That doesn't at all sound like a bomb. <laughs> well, and this is one of those things that I wonder how they figured that out. Like, how how is that the best thing uh, for waterproofing, exactly? Did they actually figure it out? Or was it like with old-timey medicine where they were just like, let's give it a go and see what happens? Little bit of this, <laughs> little bit of this, and yeah. boom, waterproofed. Throw a leech on it. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. It sounds exactly like a tent bomb. Not not great situation there. Um, 
No, Janelle, I'm sure you as well as anybody knows what was happening in the 40s. You remember what was happening in the 40s? I feel like there was some major, like, cataclysmic, like, war or something. You are exactly right. It was World (laughs) War II. (laughs) And during this time, people were really crying out for entertainment as a way to kind of escape the current national fears at the time. Um, But thanks to the war, the circus was seeing personnel and equipment shortages. So while the show normally ran pretty smoothly, at this time in the 1940s, the show had actually seen increases in malfunctions and delays. Even before the fire that we're going to talk about today, there was a fire that actually had broken out in 1942 that had killed a number of animals. So this wasn't the first time that they had seen um, issues with fire. You know, I'm really surprised that they were able to have a canvas tent. I feel like at this time period, like, I know nylon wasn't allowed to be used. There was a shortage of cotton. I feel like I there was also a shortage of canvas. I'm yeah. surprised they were able to have a giant canvas big top. My assumption would be that it was because the circus started a number of years earlier, mm-hmm. probably before the shortages went out and... and they had like the tent from left. I'm sure they had to have used the same tent for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I imagine even, even now like that kind of stuff would be incredibly expensive to replace. Oh yeah. Just because of the size of it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to flash forward a little bit to 1944 when the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus traveled to Hartford, Connecticut for a series of shows. But as was uh, the normal at the time, the trains had arrived too late for the matinee they were supposed to perform on July 5th. And the first show of the day had to be canceled. Now, apparently in the circus biz, it's considered bad luck to miss a show, but the show that was uh, happening later that evening went off without a hitch. So I guess that's that for superstition. <laughs> the next day, a huge crowd of people between six to 8,000 um, flooded into the big top to escape the heat and for a little entertainment. Now the show started as normal with clowns and animal trainers. There was a French lion tamer named Alfred Court that had come out and done his lion taming thing. This was followed by an incredibly famous uh, trapeze and daredevil stunt group called the Flying Walendas. I actually think they're still around doing like daredevil-y things. Mm-hmm. And one of them died uh, walking across a tightrope in between like some big buildings in New York, I think, without a net. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yep. I mean, they are daredevils. That was kind of their thing is they did this stuff without a net. So it was a little bit more dangerous. Now, what happened next is in contention for reasons that will become clear later. But a small fire broke out near the men's toilets and about 20. This happened about 20 minutes into the performance. Once the fire reached the tent, it quickly set the big top ablaze thanks to the uh, gasoline, paraffin, wax prep method, which, like you said, like a literal bomb. (laughs) Now, a performer noticed the fire and yelled um, that the tent was on fire. Band leader Merle Evans instructed the band to switch to Stars and Stripes Forever, something that was created as a signal to other employees um, that something had gone wrong. Now, this is I, I read this and I was like, I'm pretty sure I know what that is, but I ha- definitely had to look it up. I'll give you like the first 10 seconds and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know that song? Yep. I do. It's very 4th of July. And actually, it really makes me think of uh, Jaws, because there is a part in Jaws where there's a band playing. Oh. I'm pretty sure they're playing that song. Are they signaling (laughs) that song to say, like, shark in the water? (laughs) I mean, they might as well. 
I just to me the idea of I mean it's a good signal song because it's like weird enough that you would notice it happening but at the same Mm -hmm. time in the midst of all of this panic you just have the band playing that song it's like very titanic a little peppy right tragedy yeah yeah so the ringmaster Fred Bradna tried to tell the audience to remain calm and leave in an orderly fashion, but at that moment the power went out and the audience could no longer hear him. The ushers also tried to keep some order in the tent as people were leaving, but it quickly turned into pandemonium and the pan and panic as the audience attempted to flee. While Many people were able to escape the blaze. There were reports of patrons walking in circles looking for their loved ones rather than trying to get out. Others left the tent and then came back in when they couldn't find their loved ones outside. Some other people just remained in their seats, assuming that somebody would like put out the fire soon, but they, big hint for the end, they didn't. And there were some other people who had tried to escape through, they had like, uh, a couple of shoots coming off of the sides of the tent that they used to let people come in and out. And some of those had been blocked mm-hmm. off so that they could bring the big cats in and out of the big top. So when people tried to escape, they got trapped uh, at the end of the ends of those shoots. Uh, some people even went so far as to uh, begin cutting holes in the sides of the tent to try to like find a quicker way out. There was an attempt to put out the blaze using buckets of water, but the effort was in vain. And within 10 minutes, the fire had burned through the support ropes and poles, which caused the entire tent, a total of 19 tons, to come crashing down on anyone remaining. Firefighters arrived and put the blaze out, but by that time, almost 170 people had died from either exposure to the flames and smoke or from being trampled in the panic. The number of dead is something that's like still hugely debated, even now, 76 years Mm -hmm. later, for a few reasons. First, there was a bag of body parts that had been incorrectly labeled as one whole person. Sounds about right. Yeah, I'm like, just this idea of like uh, uh, compiling all the body parts in an area and being like, I'm pretty sure that's a dude. There were also many families who received insurance payments after their loved ones died later from the extent of their injuries, including burns from the melting paraffin that was falling from the ceiling. At the time, authorities investigating the fire reported this as an accident, assuming it had been caused by someone flicking a cigarette and nobody was charged with arson. And that is something that later in later years, I I should say more recent years, has been tested whether the ember from a cigarette butt can start a fire like that. And it seems like those things can only be started with a flame. But the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, they didn't escape some sort of punishment for what happened. On July 7th, 1944, authorities filed charges of voluntary manslaughter against five officials and employees for negligence. Claims against them included a lack of fire preparations when it was revealed that in the fire, it it was revealed that the fire extinguishers had been buried under some like stuff back in circus storage. So when a fire broke out, they couldn't actually find them. In addition, the circus was charged with failing to notify the Hartford Fire Department of their arrival and intention to perform. Ultimately, four of the five officials pled no contest and were found guilty receiving prison sentences. All served approximately one year before receiving full pardons. The circus itself agreed to be responsible for the financial damages, paying approximately $5 million to the families of victims, but refused to accept uh, any responsibility for the fire itself. Which is like classic corporation thing. Not our fault. Mm-hmm. Now, this is basically where everything stayed for about five years when in 1950, police were interviewing a man named Robert Dale Segree. Now, Robert Dale Segree is the name that's been sitting on a post-it note on my desk for like three months. He's the whole reason that I looked into this case. So Henry J. Callen, who was the Ohio Marshal, um, the Ohio Fire Marshal, he released this prepared statement uh, to news outlets at the time of Segree's confession, quote, 
Segree was employed by the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus from June 30th to July 13th, 1944. He joined the circus on June 30th at Portland, Maine, and the day he joined the circus, there was a fire on tent ropes that was extinguished without loss. The circus moved from Portland, Maine to Providence, Rhode Island, and while there, another small fire occurred on the tent flap, which again was extinguished without loss. On July 6th, 1944, at Hartford, Connecticut, the major fire occurred, which took the lives of 168 people. A thorough and comprehensive investigation of the facts concerning Segree had disclosed, according to his own admission, that he is responsible for that and other major fires, places, and dates of which were given. End quote. So let's talk about Robert Dale Segree for a sec. It appears that Segree had an abusive childhood by his own account, saying that his father would punish him by holding his fingers over a flame. Mm. He was sneaking out of the house at age nine or 10 to like roam the streets at night. And following a background check and interviews with like relatives and other authorities, it was revealed that from 1940 to 1946, the town of Portland, Maine had seen 28 major fires and 40 minor fires within 10 blocks of Segree's home. Coincidence? I don't know. Now, when he was interviewed in 1950, Segree confessed to setting the fire at the circus at the age of 13, saying he had had a nightmare involving an Indian riding on a flaming horse that had told him to do it. If you look this part up, it's often referred to as the Red Man Dreams. And he did some... There was there was some article that they did, I think, in Time magazine, mm-hmm. where they released these drawings that he had done of this this person that he referred to as the Red Man, like that he remembered from his dreams. It's pretty crazy. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty wild. <laughs> um, he also claimed that he blacked out following the nightmare, but only he only came to after the fire had already been started. Mm-hmm. Segree had actually been arrested by Ohio authorities for some unrelated arsons when he confessed to the Hartford Circus fires, but additionally confessed to other arsons and multiple murders included. He, these included a claim that he had beaten a girl to death uh, with a rock when he was nine, Yikes. strangling a man who had caught him setting a fire strangling a boy on a beach and a murder that happened in Japan when he had served in the military. Now, most of these claims about murder either had a lack of records or were unable unable to be verified. Um, and later it was determined that Segree had suffered from some sort of mental illness. Um, they did look into like the military records from his his time in Japan. They didn't see anything there. There weren't any reports of a boy being found on a beach in the area that he had claimed there was. So most of those things, I have a feeling, didn't happen except for probably the fires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Segree was convicted for the two unrelated arsons in Ohio, receiving 40 years in prison, but being released on supervision in 1959. Later, while reinvestigating the case in 1994, Segree actually recanted all of his confessions from the 50s, saying he, like, by the time he had come out, nobody was going to believe him. He was just like, I was only 13 at the time of this, specifically this fire. He's like, I was 13 at the time. There's no way that I could have done this. I was off seeing this movie. It's pretty interesting stuff. There will be links to these interviews. They have them on YouTube. They're kind of interesting. Definitely encourage you to check them out. But to this day, the cause of the Hartford Circus Fire has never been determined. And countless victims, there are still many victims who have not been identified. I did put at the bottom of our notes, and I'll include these in the show notes, some links to images that were taken uh, while the fire was happening and after the fire had happened. And it's mm-hmm. it's pretty... They're pretty intense. Even in one of the 
in one of the links, there's like an aerial picture that they took the next, like the following day of like all of the destruction. And you can tell everything is just flattened. Like there's nothing left standing of that tent whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. But that is the story of the Hartford Circus Fires. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So... For my tale, we are also going to be a little bit on the lighter side. This is going to be a murder light-ish. <laughs> murder light. Um, yeah. So I've been doing a lot of like academic research, unfortunately, and my life is just like steeped in a research library right now. It's nauseating at times. Um, but we got into a conversation about like oral histories and how you cite an oral history and how you discuss oral histories. And... It made me think of this book that I had read, um, which was called The Great Franklin County Moonshine Conspiracy. And the entire premise of the book was about an oral history. I'm not going to lie. When I saw that was like the title of what you were covering, I was like, hmm, intriguing. Yes. Yeah. It is very ambiguous. And, you know, it made me think a lot about the stories that my parents and my grandparents used to tell us. In particular, there was one that always sticks out in my mind about my great-grandmother making gin in their bathtub. Oh, my gosh. So I feel like I have a very deep connection to this story. (laughs) Bathtub gin. Yeah. Um, Most of my um, family on my mother's side is from North Carolina and Virginia. So... This kind of like oral history tradition is very strong on that side of the family. And moonshine is still a part of the culture in in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of families who live in the Appalachian region that still make moonshine. They still have these stories. It's all very Mm. much part of the culture. So we're going to look at length at the Great Franklin County Moonshine Conspiracy. Um, Vicki, have you ever seen the movie Lawless? I have Oh, you know, I do remember that coming out, (laughs) but I have not Uh seen it. It has my all-time favorite, Tom Hardy. Ooh. Um, (laughs) But this this, uh, story is kind of what Lawless is about a little bit. Okay. (laughs) They take some artistic liberties. Yeah, Um, that was like the last movie that Shia LaBeouf did before (laughs) he went completely crazy. I mean... He was probably crazy somewhere under the. He was, but like, he got a whole. He can be a child star and not be a little crazy. It's true. It's true. (laughs) We're gonna go to like Great Depression era Appalachia, which, if you're familiar with the, um, and I'm pronouncing it in the in the southern vernacular, Appalachia. um, Some people call it Appalachian. Ooh, I don't like that. We're gonna we're gonna say it. Like the real people who live there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the Appalachians are already uh, a very poor area, the, the mountain area in particular. Um, lots of people live in what they call hollers, which is basically mm. neighborhoods built around uh, families or some a couple number of families. And they live in these areas their entire life. Okay. So we have these poor areas. And on top of this, we're going to be kind of in the era right after... Um, Prohibition officially ends federally, but there are still areas, especially in the South, where prohibition becomes kind of county and state law. If you've ever heard of uh, dry counties, that is referencing counties that don't sell liquor at all, or they only sell liquor one day a week at a specific time. So okay. we're kind of still in the midst of a kind of prohibition and that just kind of adds insult to injury because people were making a great deal of money off of selling moonshine. 
Now, if you know anything about NASCAR, you should also know that NASCAR is was kind of born out of the moonshine runners that were um, going around the uh, South delivering moonshine to well-known mobsters. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. So there's a I lot of that. I had no <laughs> idea. I would not have even guessed that was where it got its start at. That's crazy. Yeah, so... We're going to look at Franklin County, Virginia in 1934 specifically. I've heard quite a bit uh, from people about, you know, the history of moonshining in their family. But a lot of people ask, like, why would you even consider becoming a moonshiner, let alone a bootlegger? So you have the people who make it and then the people who transport it. Like, these are very dangerous jobs. Mm-hmm. And I read from this book a very poetically kind of emphasized description of the people in this place in this time period and why they would risk it and why some people do still risk it by making moonshine. Okay. So this is a a direct quote from the book. Despite their ingenuity, they had too little money to buy adequate shoes for their children in the 1920s and 30s. Most were able to provide only one pair per child each year, if possible, because that kind of purchase took cash and many didn't have it. This meant the children needed to go barefoot most of the year just to save up the good leather for special days. And snow fell a lot during the winters, then. Rags tied onto feet and stuffed into men's old boots sufficed for many. Shoes for children are merely one example for explaining how desperate people became as they tried to improve their income. These people were not ignorant. They were not doing without because they failed to know how or about the wider world. They knew what others had, even as close as their own county seat and certainly in Roanoke, Virginia. Health care and education, housing and heat, water and septic tanks, and aid for the elderly. So that little list at the end of that paragraph is what a lot of people lacked, and which is why they risked it becoming moonshiners and bootleggers. Like, there was no hospital. There were very rarely a doctor. They were more often than not educated at home. Um, If there was a school system, it was very small. I think my grandmother's graduating class for her high school was 12. Wow. <laughs> she was that is tiny. She was, uh, mm-hmm, she was from, uh, and most of them were her, you know, siblings, cousins, that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And you think about housing and heat, water and septic. Okay. So my grandmother grew up in a log cabin that my great grandfather built himself that had three rooms and dirt floors. Like, you know, living in a house with dirt floors and few rooms was kind of the norm. And when yeah. they talk about, like, septic tanks and water, you know, people were getting water from the river. People were making their own wells. Like, outhouses were a thing. Like, outhouses. I went to go visit. <laughs> I went to go visit my great aunt almost every summer when we went down to go visit my grandmother. And she had an outhouse until 1997. <laughs> no, thank you. Hard pass so. on that. Yeah, I I knew a little bit, a very small, minute part of what country living was. (laughs) So moonshine uh, was really just a way for people to make ends meet. It was a way to put food on the table, and it was an extremely dangerous job, not just because of the laws, but also because other moonshiners would claim territory. A lot of the times you were dealing with mobs or the mafia when you were selling And of course, there was the potential for your still to blow sky high. Yet there is a very romantic kind of notion and nostalgia when people talk about moonshining, especially during this period that we're discussing. Okay. So this is another little excerpt from uh, another book uh, called Spirits of Just Men, Mountaineers, Liquor Bosses, and Lawmen in the Moonshine Capital of the World. And it kind of explains... That everybody really knew what was going on. Even the children knew, but they were told to keep away from places back in the hollows where the men gathered during the night, lanterns burning and steam rising up through the rhododendron and hemlock branches. Unless they were needed to help. Everyone could tell a still was running, sometimes by the thumping sound or the smoke, or when the hogs and cattle come upon spent mash would stumble around fields, or when the men gone to drink would walk the road staggering too. The children of the mean drunks knew especially well. Sometimes people could tell by a man's extra money he spent at the store when a run was done. So, everybody kind of was uh, in cahoots. They knew what was going on. That was a pretty important frame to kind of explain this story, because we're talking about the 
beginning of Prohibition, everything was kind of lax. And then they started to get real serious. And they started, you know, Elliot Ness going in there, breaking up stills, getting rid of liquor, pouring it into the river, you know, the whole shebang. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't really have an established force. And then all of a sudden it was like gangbusters. They were coming in and everybody was running for the hills in a literal sense. But as time drew on, the bootleggers, too, and the moonshiners became even more organized, and the criminal element was heightened extraordinarily. And this was still going on even after Prohibition had been lifted. So the government wanted to bring the hammer down on illegal um, moonshining businesses because they were not getting a piece of their share. Of course. Now... They wanted to make sure that they were getting taxes on everything because this is the U.S. and everything is death and taxes here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they figured out a way to kind of combat this illegal moonshining business was to come down on them from a financial perspective. So this is another quote. The burden of alcohol regulation shifted from the Bureau of Prohibition to the alcohol tax unit of the Treasury Department taking whiskey out of a moral battleground and placing it into a fiscal management arena. So they wanted to make sure that if you're selling liquor, you better have a license and you better be paying your taxes on it. Because regulation. Yes. There's a lot of really great quotes from this book. So I pulled a bunch from it because I really, they put it in such a great framework that um, honestly, I couldn't write it any better. Yeah. (laughs) Some government officials in Franklin County accepted bribes to look the other way and protect bootleggers from other lawmen and moonshine distillers. Even the sheriff of Franklin was in on the racket, overseeing a complex bribery system for the biggest moonshine producers in the region. Using the tax rate instituted in 1920, moonshiners in Franklin County would have generated $5.5 million in taxes between 1930 and 1935 if they had legally sold their products. During the same time period, more than 1 million five-gallon cans, which was used for storing whiskey, were purchased in the county and 37 tons of yeast were ordered, which is nine times the rate that the capital city of Richmond was ordering yeast. That is a lot. So... They wanted to get it on this. They wanted their money. Now, the preceding conspiracy trial would throw Franklin County into chaos. Threats were made against witnesses. There was jury tampering. There was even a murder. But all of this kind of conspiracy started with indictments. 80 people were indicted, to be exact. Oh, my God. Now, (laughs) because this region was so involved in moonshine, that was pretty much the entire goddamn county. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were all charged with defrauding the government of $5 million. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot of people and money. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yes, it is out of control. Federal agent Colonel Thomas Bailey posed as a buyer and slowly began to unravel a very deep conspiracy of racketeering and bribery in Franklin County. He would uncover that the bribery went all the way to the sheriff, D. Wilson Hodges. Authorities claim that the county was divided into districts and that the sheriff's deputies were tasked with protecting each section from federal revenue agents. It kind of, when I read read this, it reminds me of how people were, uh, police officers in New York were kind of protecting Times Square in the 70s, right before they decided to turn it into the Times Square that we know now. Mm -hmm. A lot of cops were getting paid off by the mafia just to look the other way. And to kind of do like a catch and release scenario with a lot of the people dealing drugs and the prostitutes and whatnot. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of correlations. <laughs> now, in 1935, a federal grand jury indicted 34 Franklin County residents out of those 80 people, including the Commonwealth's attorney, several sheriff's deputies, and a former member of the General Assembly. Seven pled guilty and seven more pled no contest. The remaining 20 defendants went on trial for 10 weeks. Oh. And they called 200 witnesses. Oh, my God. That is just excessive. It's crazy. so much. So the jury deliberated for three days, but all three defendants came back with a guilty verdict. Now... The conspiracy isn't just the conspiracy that the entire county was in on the moonshining. 
there was a little bit deeper of a conspiracy. And this case became legend because in a lot of the stuff evolving around it went missing. So T. Keister Greer, who wrote the, one of the books that I uh, kind of quoted from, he was in the process of writing his magnum opus about this case. And he was spending a lot of time trying to find out information. And this is about 1950s. He went to go get the court uh, documents and official transcripts and realized that they went missing. Mm. Now, he had to attain, obtain a lot of eyewitness accounts of the case. And a lot of his information came from interviews, diaries, clippings from newspapers, and then a lot of oral histories, which is what those interviews were about. Um, so that's kind of where that question of oral histories comes into play and why his book is so heavily based on it. Because a lot of the, I mean, there were a couple of court documents that were still there, but a lot of them were straight up gone. Now, one of the few transcripts he was able to find in relation to the case went on to discuss that there were jurors who refused to agree to a guilty verdict unless the Commonwealth Attorney General, uh, Charles Carter Lee, was let off. Now, this gentleman just so happened to be the grand nephew of none other than Robert E. Lee. Ugh. I see what's going on here. I yes. don't like it. So this is where the recounts of jury tampering kind of come in. It okay. appears that jurors might have been paid off to uh, get Charles Carter Lee out of there and not be charged. Now, in 1946, there was a trial about conspiracy relating to jury tampering and some other things. Uh, I think it was like... A, the way they gathered some evidence and the way that they interviewed some witnesses, there was a little bit of issue with the way that they did the case in the 30s. So in 1946, a federal grand jury indicted 24 people on charges of tampering with the jury in the conspiracy case. After the trial, 22 defendants were convicted. So we are like seeing astronomical amounts of people being convicted. <laughs> yeah. Now... There is also a conspiracy in this case revolving around the murder of Franklin County Deputy Sheriff Thomas Jefferson Richards. Richard was the money man in the moonshine and ring. So he knew the who, what, where, and when of just about everything that the moonshine and business was offering. In 1934, October to be exact, Richard was transporting a prisoner along Callaway Road in Franklin County, Virginia, when a set of headlights appeared and then followed by another set of headlights out of nowhere. The first car overtook the police cruiser with rounds from a 45 caliber pistol and a 12-gauge shotgun. By the time additional police help arrived, the two men had more than 100 rounds in their bodies. Whoa. Now, Richards knew who paid what, how much, and how the money was laundered, where the supplies were, and how it came in. So he was kind of an important cog in this machine. So the theory was that he was killed because of the impending investigation. Now, this happened one week before the grand jury passed down their decision. So they figured that he was going to try to get some sort of sweet deal to get let off mm -hmm. and that he was going to implicate a whole lot of people. So, Oh, yeah. He, he definitely sounds like he's the one who knew everything, like everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was able to find quite a few newspaper clippings, which was actually pretty interesting. And I posted some in here. There is a lot more nuances and details involving the disappearance of the paperwork that T. Keister Greer goes into in his book, The Great Moonshine Conspiracy Trial of 1935. Mm -hmm. The thing about that book, though, is it's extremely hard to find. And it, if you can get a copy, they go for about $200 a pop. <laughs> Oh, my God. So there is some of it that's been digitized, but not all of it. It's I was able to look at it because a research library that I went to had a copy of it. Mm -hmm. But it's a very interesting read. And you can find a lot of articles about T. Keister Greer. He was kind of like a well-known lawyer and historian in Virginia. And this was, his, like I said before, his magnum opus. This is the book he wrote that he completed that was his passion project before he passed away. And okay. it's a good read. Lots of oral history. It's really great. The other book that I read that was really good was Spirits of Just Men, Mountaineers, Liquor Bosses, and Lawmen in the Moonshine Capital of the World. So those two books, you can find a great information. You can also find a lot of stuff um, like the, Rich, uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch newspaper has been digitized. So I was Ooh. able to pull straight up 
newspaper clippings from 1935 to kind of look and they have they use some really magnificent language in it too (laughs) yeah but moonshining is still very much a part of that area there are people who still moonshine um if you've ever watched i believe it's the history channel that had the moonshiners uh, tv show um there are people who still run illegal stills there are people who still sell moonshine um you can you can make moonshine for your own consumption. It has to be under a certain amount, and that's only in a, a few counties. Um, because they want to actually keep that history alive because it is so steeped in what the Appalachia region is. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, this con- this part of the country has kind of actually been taken over more now by illegal marijuana grows and yeah. meth labs. Yeah. Um, but there is still that nostalgia and history that's steeped in moonshining. Um, I believe there's actually a moonshining museum down there. Oh. It is something that is still in the forefront of people's minds. They're still making TV shows about it. They're still making movies yeah. about it. It's interesting how moonshine has almost become, and I think, honestly, like in part to these TV shows and stuff, it's almost become a branding thing, too, because even though it's not oh, yeah. um, like legitimate, like, actually homemade moonshine which is real Mm -hmm. nasty it's real gross (laughs) i mean i've had real moonshine i've had real moonshine apples if you put some apples and some cinnamon sticks in it it's good uh fresh peaches also delicious that could be good but i've had like yeah like just straight up unflavored moonshine (laughs) and it was literally like drinking paint thinner but yeah, there is... white lightning is not for everyone. <laughs> no, it's, it is fucking nasty. Um, it is really one step away from ethanol, like, for truly, your car. <laughs> truly. And I, I think the branding of it has people still interested in this kind of, like, culture. Because um, now you can get, you know, moonshine cherries. You can get this, like, mm-hmm. all these different flavored moonshines that, like I said, are not they're they're produced to be similar but not the real thing at all yeah it's like Um, whiskey with slightly higher proof and that's about it (laughs) right right and also very good i mean i have i think Mm -hmm. i have a jar of moonshine cherries in my fridge right now they're good but it definitely keeps it like in the public uh Mm -hmm. headspace that this is still like a thing that's happening yep yep definitely but that is the uh, Great Moonshine Conspiracy Trial of 1935. Ooh, I enjoyed that. Um, if you, well, before you drink <laughs> your moonshine and go to a circus, why don't you check out this podcast? Every one hell of a circus. I'm also thinking now after I said that, nobody's going to a circus with COVID, COVID going on. <laughs> go to the circus in your mind. Yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're drinking yeah. moonshine, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. totally possible. Yep. Moonshine Mind Circus. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> the neighborhood is unsafe. The streets, unlit. While others sleep soundly, you lie awake because you know the truth. You know that, no matter where you go, there's always a chance that a monster is in your midst. The darkness that runs deep within our own veins, the evil found in even the sweetest of souls, sometimes comes to light. And when it does, the result is a person that takes on that evil, that wears it proudly, and becomes part of the darkness itself. I am Aaron from Devil We Know Podcast. And on our true crime show, we dive into the scariest corners of our past and present to reveal the devil we know. A father, a mother, a brother a sister, and anyone, anywhere who hides in plain sight, living a life of bloody secrets while living just next door. Come check us out and hear the chilling, true stories about the devils we know. Well, that has been our show for this week, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find so many more just like this at thebadtastecrimecast.com. It's we've got like ni- this is ninety five. I mean, quite the back catalog. We're closing in on a hundred. We really are. It's terrifying. Uh huh. But cool. We're almost to f- we're almost to being around for four years, you guys. 
It's a long time. That's longer than I've been at some <laughs> jobs. Time in podcast years. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've said that before, but like that's what I compare it to. Like definitely longer than mm-hmm. I've been at some some jobs. Uh mm-hmm. While you're at the website, you can find our merch page at badtastecrimecast.com slash merch, uh, where you can get, what are we, we're going into fall and winter, so we got hoodies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we got shirts, we got bags, we got anything you can think of, basically, that you would want yeah. our logo on. It's great. <laughs> coffee coffee mugs, we got coffee mugs. Sure, for do some. it. Hot cocoa, Put your anyway. spice in there. Yeah. <laughs> Check that stuff out. You can also find our donate page at the website, um, badtastecrimecast.com slash donate. It'll take you right over to our Patreon where we have tons of bonus content, um, mm-hmm. uh, close to 100 episodes worth of bonus content, if that that sounds enticing. Yes, uh, yes. I think- All kinds of things to wet your whistle. <laughs> yes. Did I miss anything? Did you mention that you can still go? Is that right? to watch our her no her no okay no but we did do an interview um with yes, nick from side street <laughs> yeah we did do an idiot uh, i this clearly the end because my brain has just immediately shut off did an interview with <laughs> nick uh from side street studio arts um that was like a live interview a few weeks ago should still be up yep. on the their YouTube page and on the Facebook, and I think we've shared links for that on our social media as well. Mm-hmm. It was really fun. I we don't get to do that kind of stuff very often, and yeah, I really now. enjoyed that. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, but it was nice to just like sit and talk about the stuff that you create with somebody else. Like that was just mm-hmm. I, I just enjoyed that. Yeah. Um. What else? Anything else? I mean, that's it for now. Well, I think we'll see so. what the rest of the year takes takes us to. <laughs> Here's to hoping the audio does not delete itself after I click stop. Um, oh, God. Our, <laughs> our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zaszewski, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crimecast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye.